Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. Welcome to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we're exploring the ethics of cryptocurrency with my guest, Catherine Fleck. Money was created to solve problems. For most of human history, people dealt with stuff. They hunted and gathered it, they traded it, they preserved and stored it, but it was inconvenient, so money was invented to make life easier. Suppose you're a rancher and you need a new barn. That takes a lot of time and wood you don't have. So you find someone with time and offer him five cows to build it for you. The builder, in turn, finds someone with wood and gives them three cows. Now everyone has cows and there's also a barn, right? Everyone's happy. Not exactly. The woman you got wood from can't keep the cows alive because she doesn't know how to care for them. And besides, she wants to eat them and wear their skin. But the meat's going to go bad long before she can do this. And the builder isn't quite sure about his cows. Are they healthy? The wrong age? What quality will their meat be? Maybe the math doesn't work out either. Maybe it's not a five-cow barn, but a six-and-one-eighth-cow barn. What then? And what happens when a cow gets sick during delivery? Whose problem would this be? The rancher, the barn builder, the woodmaker? All of this is why we need money. Money doesn't spoil. It's permanent. It has consistent value. It's clearly marked. Money is divisible. A dollar can be quarters or nickels, pennies, or even half pennies. And finally, money is fungible. If a dollar starts to deteriorate, a bank will provide a replacement. Everyone gets something they can use and something they can carry to the marketplace. Try going shopping with three quarters of a cow in your pocket. There's another serious problem that money solves. People are often dishonest. All of the above can be resolved by using precious metals as a stand-in or something else. Gold, for example. But it's hard to tell if the gold is real, pure, and what its weight is. The same people who will mess with the quality of the gold will also mess with the scales. So you need someone objective to authorize its value. For hundreds of years, this was the king. His mint would divide the metals and stamp them with his insignia, verifying its values. These coins, as they were now called, were long-lasting, had shared value, were reliable, tradable, and you could carry them. They had become money, a symbol of trust. Also, there was one more problem. Storage. People didn't like having all of their money on them because it could be stolen, lost, or destroyed by accident. So they needed a place to keep it. Banks. People would deposit their money and get paper receipts that recorded how much was being held for them. Instead of just trading money, they could also trade these receipts. They were called banknotes. We use them all the time now, but we call them cash. And we treat it like it's valuable in itself because the government, our king, promises that it has value. The government has also insured our bank deposits in case the banker is a crook or the bank fails. As I started off by saying, we have money because it solves problems. I've gone through this history because today we're going to discuss the ethics of cryptocurrency. Cryptos such as Bitcoin, Dogecoin, and NFTs are all an alternative to money. They're digital currencies that people trade online, the authenticity of which is verified by a number of different voluntary non-governmental groups. It's designed to be anonymous, to avoid regulation, and to be an alternative to what I have been describing, fiat money, currency that is declared legal and of a certain value by a governmental authority. Cryptocurrency isn't built on trust. It's built on speculation. 
Despite its name, it's a commodity more than a currency. The goal is to buy it with the hope that it gets more valuable over time, especially since fiat money becomes less valuable with inflation. This has led a few people to get very rich, a lot of people to lose everything, and most everyone else to feel like they're being left out because they don't know how to buy, sell, or even access the crypto markets. Is cryptocurrency the wave of the future? If so, how do we manage it ethically? Is it a risk worth taking? If so, how do we protect those who use it? Is it a scam? If so, who do we blame and how do we hold them accountable? These are the great ethical questions of cryptocurrency, and they're what we're going to ask our guests today. The issue, it seems to me, is that crypto brings to the fore the very problems we use money to solve. It takes an item of trust and certified value and lays it in the shadows. It adds levels of risk and uncertainty that most of us need to avoid in order to prosper. But I could be getting it wrong. Its defenders will argue that the very reasons I'm afraid of it are why we should celebrate it. Its virtue is that it's outside the system and untouchable by untrustworthy governments. Our guest will help us examine both sides and propose a framework to make crypto more moral. But I'll admit, I'm entering this discussion skeptical and suspicious because I think money works and I don't know why we need an alternative. I personally don't like risk, but I know others do, and for them, the gamble is part of the fun. At the moment, crypto is a big game promising lots of winners. On today's episode, we'll ask whether the rules are fair. And now our guest. Catherine Flick is a reader in Computing and Social Responsibility at the Center for Computing and Social Responsibility at De Montfort University and a visiting fellow at Staffordshire University, both in England. Catherine, welcome to Why. Thank you very much for having me. To our listeners, if you'd like to participate, please share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. TikTok is on the way. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. Rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform so that others can find the show and listen to all 15 years worth of episodes for free, as well as our sister show, Philosophical Currents, at our website, yradioshow.org. That's whyradioshow.org. And as always, this show can only happen with your support. We exist solely on listener contributions. So click donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Alumni Foundation portal. All right, so Catherine, with this topic, we really have to start at the beginning. So can you explain to non-computer people what cryptocurrency is and how it works? Right. This is always the challenge because it's not as simple uh, as money. <laughs> and you explained that very well. Um, it's not as simple as, as something that we'd use instead of cows for barns. So Really what it is, is a very open book. It's an open ledger. So what happens is um, if somebody, let's say, I would like to give you some cryptocurrency, um, we essentially go to this book. I write down, I'm going to give Jack um, 100 bitcoins. And then the book allows us to understand that that is the transaction that will take place. And then you will receive the currency and then the, the book will be have, have the record of that transaction um, publicly available to everybody. And there's a whole kind of system that goes behind that, that supports that, that makes sure that I can't write it in and then erase it, or I can't write it in and then give you 200 coins, for example, right? So there's, it's basically a, an open public ledger that shows how, what transactions have been made within this system. And so um, really, like you said, there are different sorts of 
cryptocurrencies, so the different coins, um, and that's often where people get a little bit confused because they sort of think, well, there's so many different sorts of coins, but really all of these are all these are just different books, and they're different um, arrangements that people make to to transfer value between them, essentially. Now, what the coins actually are is is they're, they're not actually really things. Like <laughs> they're really just uh, you can cut them into a, you know a billion pieces if you want to. Um, they're really just um, essentially uh, a line in a book that says I've paid Jack a hundred coins or you know point not 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 one of a coin or something like that. Um, so that's the, I guess that's the the, the simplest explanation. Um, so, th- so this open ledger is is the blockchain, right? So when people use the That's term right. blockchain, what they're referring to is this this ledger, this spreadsheet, this this accounting system. Now, you say it's publicly available. So if it's publicly available, why does everyone talk about cryptocurrency as if it's anonymous, as if it's kind of secret? How can it be both public and secret at the same time? Well, see, the trick is that it's not actually really secret because obviously it is public. So what you do is instead of me, instead of it saying Catherine Flick has given Jack Weinstein 100 um, Bitcoin, it will say blah, 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 numbers, 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 letters, 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 big long string of numbers and letters has given big other long string of numbers and letters um, 100 coins. And if the idea behind crypto to, to begin with was that every time you make a transaction, you would create a new long set of string of letters and numbers um, that would be the kind of the holder for the, the currency for that transaction. And they, they're called wallets um, because they sort of are, are, you know, similar to the wallet you would carry around with you in your pocket. Right. But the problem is with that is that people got lazy and people got, um, I guess they, they they couldn't be bothered really to to deal with lots and lots and lots of little transactions each having their own wallet. So they condense them all into one wallet and people tend to start using the same wallet for different transactions. And that allows um, people who are good at investigating the blockchain to kind of trace back different transactions. And if there's anything that then um, is some, they can basically bring in other information from parts of the internet. For example, if I am on uh, a website that I buy a, I don't know, a a piece of artwork from and it has my, um, it'll have my wallet um, identifier there, so that big long string of numbers. And if I say on Twitter or something like that, hey, I just bought this artwork with my name attached to that message, then you can actually then use that to trace back, ah, so Catherine owns this big long string of numbers wallet we can then trace back all of the transactions that I've ever made with that wallet or any of the money that's ever come to me through that wallet. And so it, it's really a pseudonymous uh, approach rather than a completely anonymous approach because it's, it's able to be, you know, given the right data in the right places, you're able to kind of investigate and, and, and work out who it, who it is really. Why, why is privacy so important what what is it that the crypto community uh has in mind that they're so focused on most of them anyway keeping this as anonymous as possible well they want the digital version of cash so cash itself is is anonymous right if i give you a hundred dollars there's no record of the fact that I've given you the hundred dollars necessarily. If I, if I come give it to you in person in, in like coins or cash, 
Um, there's no record on that cash or on those coins that I have give that that was me that gave those to you. So you could go and give that to your hairdresser or some something somebody like that, and they would not know that that particular coin or that or or that particular money had come from me. So this is the this is what they're trying to do with 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 uh, cryptocurrencies is to anonymize it in the same sort of way that cash is anonymized and they want a digital cash because there's nothing equivalent to digital cash right now i mean we have digital we're able to transfer money around but it's always got some sort of identifier um and so this is what they wanted wanted to pull out from from, they wanted to get out of that system that you were talking about they wanted to get out of the fiat currency system that is very identifying and they wanted to get into um a a way that we can do things as, as easily offline with cash online i i mean this is a version of the same question but but why is that privacy so valuable what what (laughs) i mean is 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 it a is it a fetishization of privacy What, what what's going on there right so i mean i guess it also helps to talk a little bit about the politics in which this has been developed so really this came out of a kind of a libertarian um side of technology that just kind of likes to be independent of large uh, institutions. And so really the idea um, was to, if, if they could set up something that's decentralized, because it's also like there's no central authority um, for these cryptocurrencies, it's all done by peer-to-peer ledger writing. So, you know, everybody gets a copy of this ledger. And so that's the, and that, and the updates kind of filter all around a whole network of people. So there's no one person that's that's in charge of it. Um, so that, so this, this was, um, yeah, basically it came out, out of this idea that, um, these, they wanted to be outside of the system because they wanted to be able to, uh, be able to transfer value around without having to deal with potentially with taxes, potentially with, um, you know, uh, fees for, for money transfers, because back when it started, which is around, well, early late 2000 uh, no 2009 2010 i think it was somewhere around there um it was basically about um it was around the time when it was still quite expensive to send money uh, digitally outside of your country basically so if you didn't have a direct bank transfer you'd have to use something like paypal or um other other money transfer things which had fees and things so people wanted to be able to avoid that they wanted to be able to avoid um like uh, currency exchange fees um, and things to transfer money overseas as well. Um, so there were lots of there were lots of sort of reasons why uh, they wanted to get outside of the system. I think the political one was the big driver one driver, but then people who found the utility in being able to transfer money around without having fees or having to pay taxes, um, they found that quite uh, useful as well. And then of course the main driver for c- cryptocurrencies in the beginning really was to to like the main circulator of money was things like drug purchases and you don't really want to have your name attached to transfers of money to people who are selling drugs because then that can potentially implicate you as well so the privacy there was really important and so yeah basically that's that's the reason that they wanted privacy and where they slipped up over the years is where um where some of these big drug busts of these big uh, uh, online um drug markets uh were picked up was picked up through um, people doing that kind of forensic deciphering of who was attached to particular wallets that I was telling you about before. So it was quite an interesting way that this, the privacy and the anonymity got uh, destroyed fairly, fairly rapidly throughout the, throughout the process. 
do you think that um, this early association with illegal activities has um, created an unfair reputation for Bitcoin? Um, I don't think there's really anything fair or unfair about it, to be honest with you. I think it's it's a it it's is what it is, right? I mean, that was what it was useful for, so people used it for that because there wasn't any alternative. So, one of the things that I mean, cash is the main drive, the main payment form for buying drugs on the street, right? If you go down to your um, local drug dealer, you're not going to whip out your credit card and give them a whole bunch of information about you and them and you and, and them you right i mean it's it, you give them cash right so they wanted to it was a perfect uh way for um to kind of also drive the utility of this light so this, it was like i think they latched onto this and said hey look this is actually a really good um way to pay for for drugs online uh because there hasn't been a safe quote unquote way to do that uh in the past in terms of, of privacy so it was actually the main driver. I suspect if there hadn't been the drug market online, then it probably wouldn't have taken off much at all, except amongst a bunch of uh, hardcore enthusiasts. So I don't. I think it's probably fair because of the way, the way that it, uh, you know, it was used for this. I mean, but I'm, I mean, fair or unfair is is I think not not really the question here. It's about is it is it a, a reasonable. Um, uh, way <laughs> reputation for it to have had, and I think, yeah, definitely very reasonable because that's what it was being used for. <laughs> in 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 one of the surveys that you did for your research, uh, there was someone who you, you uh, I, I felt it was representative who, who felt that Bitcoin uh, was or or cryptocurrency was was really useful because our major governments are going to collapse in twenty years. <laughs> How much <laughs> of this is skepticism about large scale government? How much of this is doomsday saying? How much of this is the extreme libertarian view that the entire system is so rigged that it's going to fall apart? Well, I think you've got to also then put put place all of this in in a historical context, right? So we came through the global financial crisis in which you know a lot of people lost a lot of money, um, and the people who ended up hurting the most were the people sort of at the you know the bottom end of of things, right? And and people who didn't have so much money, um, and I think that it's that this so they'd already had examples of of the fact that the you know the the major institutional systems that were in place were able to kind of crash and, and, and potentially burn. And it might not have been quite so bad this time, but, you know, next time it's going to be even worse. And I mean, so you can kind of understand that there was a lot of uh, skepticism about the, you know, the reliability of the institutional frameworks. I mean, there's obviously there's, there's always been kind of uh kind of libertarian talking points about you know the the sort of corruption in these in these systems and things like that as well and so there's there's that side of things that they wanted to get you know they wanted to try to come up with this perfect system that didn't require people to be making decisions it was just the software that that um that that was the law uh is is one of the ways they used to put is they one of the ways they used to talk about it um so yeah i think that that they are tr they were trying to sort of solve a problem um, but I'm not sure it's one that really 
existed outside of kind of hypothetical um right. and so yeah i mean yeah it, i think i think yeah that's that's where where it really is for, for that <laughs> how 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 political how vociferous how deeply felt are the political debates when you get when you go to a conference or 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 when you're on line and 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 when you give interviews and the kind of reaction how is is it is 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 um aggressive as say the american debate on guns where people are just over the top all the time um i mean it is quite aggressive i don't think it's quite as aggressive as the gun debate uh mostly um, because because people don't uh, have guns <laughs> well <laughs> Well, there's a lot more people around the world who use cryptocurrencies and they're in much more uh, regulated gun uh, regimes, right? So right. it's uh, not, maybe, maybe not quite so bad. But um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of, so there's actually a few different camps now. And what's really interesting is how that's changed over the years. So back when I first started doing my research, which was back in 2011, um, I had a whole bunch of very, you know, hardcore libertarians getting very upset about the fact that I was suggesting that perhaps, you know, Bitcoin could be regulated, for example, or that, and and so um, they got very upset with me and uh, sent me a lot of very nasty letters. At, at which point, I I decided I didn't have the mental energy to deal with that sort of thing and and stop my research, but. More recently, these days, you get what are called like <laughs> there are different sorts of camps now, right? So there, there are what are called like the <laughs> we tend to call them in the skeptical world the Bitcoin truthers, the ones that say that Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency and it's the pure the pure cryptocurrency that 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 should be the one only one that's allowed to to exist um, and everything else should be regulated. Um, and then you get the ones who are kind of like, well, you know, it's a free it's a it's a free world and a free market and you know we should let the market decide and all that side of things and they can get quite upset but i think the the more overarching debate tends to be with the people who have bought into cryptocurrencies or crypto assets like nfts um, and who are very upset about the fact that they've potentially lost a lot of money and so they tend to kind of lash out at anyone who's likely to criticize um, the whole crypto economy system um, saying that you know that we're we're the ones who are bringing it down, and that you know it's you know it's our fault that we want to we, we we're causing it to be regulated when it's not necessarily us that's doing that. It's governments realizing that actually these are securities or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a different sort of world now. It's not just just the libertarian arguments that you get. It's it's a lot of the um, a lot of people who've thrown a lot of money. On, on into into a space where they they had hoped to be one of the winners and they're actually the ones who are being left with the bag um and we often talk about the greater fool theory in uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto assets where really the only way for people to make money is to be able to is is it is if they find a greater fool to sell their assets to so if they find a greater fool to, to buy their bitcoins from or their nfts or whatever it is um, that's the only way they can make money so if they're left at the bottom trying to sell trying to sell when there's no market then they've lost the money that they have invested basically so it's they, they're the ones who tend to be quite aggressive now that's the perfect moment to take a break because this greater fool theory 
leads us to the question of ethics and whether or not there can be an ethical framework. This idea that what you're looking for is someone to take advantage of in some sense or another leads us to the great ethical questions. So let's take a break now and then we come back, we'll jump into that ethical framework. We'll talk about the ACM Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct and see where we go from there. You're listening to Catherine Flick and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Catherine Flick about cryptocurrency and the ethics behind it. We've just spent some time trying to figure out what it is and how to make sense of it all. And we ended up with this uh, discussion of the greater fool theory, this idea that what you're looking for is someone who is more of a fool than you to take your assets. You know, uh, by the time you all listen to this episode, I will have had my 54th birthday. And anyone who is my age will have grown up with movies that had very, very specific depictions of computer, I don't like the term geeks, but I'll use it, computer geeks, computer nerds, computer enthusiasts, uh, movies in particular like War Games, uh, in which uh, anyone who was seriously involved in computing liked to live on the edge, liked to live outside, and that hacking was a sport, and that in the movie War Games, uh, Matthew Broderick ends up hacking into uh, the global uh, defense network. And by the way, if you haven't watched it, or if you watched it in the 1980s, it still holds up. It's still a great film. I just saw it again recently. Um, but there is this reputation of computer folks being unethical, uh, hacking for sport, uh, liking to push the boundaries. Catherine, I want to ask you, is this in any way a fair depiction of the computing community and what kind of ethical frameworks are there in general for uh, computer science before you started working on the ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery Ethical Code of Conduct? Right. So um, the first question, are hackers still hackers, right? Um, <laughs> and I, I think, um, so the word's been a little bit reclaimed. I mean, the hacking was always a, a word in, compu in computing to talk about kind of um, using tools in ways that are unexpected or, or creating things in, in uh, that are kind of playful or, um, you know, have some utility, but maybe some, some slightly odd utility, like, you know, counting the number of birds that sit on a tree or something like that. Um, but uh, so these days there are still hackers and they're still uh, in, in terms of the like classic kind of, you know, bad guys hacking into your computer kind of hackers. Um, but they tend to be kind of, <laughs> they're a different, uh, they're a different uh, sort of thing these days. Um 
uh, but uh, they're also hackers and makers, which they, they sort of tend to, to, to call themselves. And I'm, I'm part of a, um, a hack space, um, and which is a space for people that like to create things and, and do interesting stuff. And I also run a big hacker camp every every couple of years help to help to run that. Um, okay, in, that, in that's too, amb- that's are, too uh... ambiguous. <laughs> let, me, let me let me interrupt you. That, that, what 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 is what, a hack space? A hack camp for people who like to do interesting things. That's that's. Yes. I'm going to push you on. What kind of interesting things are you talking about? Because that sounds a little. Uh, I need more information. <laughs> right. Okay. So I mean, hack spaces and hack camps tend to be for people who have. Uh, I mean, it's often people who program, people who are artists, people who are, like to create, like, you know, um, uh, who like to, I don't know, we do knitting, <laughs> we do all sorts of strange bits and bits and bobs, but it's about creating things and about um, hopefully creating things in a way that's kind of um, socially beneficial, right? I mean, not not there's not necessarily a, a, a drive to do that, like a requirement to do that, but that tends to be people people are interested in in, in things for art and and education and um kind of pushing pushing the boundaries of existing uh, tools and and things so you know it's a classic kind of you can use a ham you know you can use a screwdriver in multiple ways right the classic way is to screw in a screw with it but actually if you really want to you can use a screwdriver as a hammer you can use it as a i don't know a thing to prize open a, a tin of paint you can use it for you know all sorts of different different things right and that that would be kind of classed as as hacking with that screwdriver um it's being used outside of its intended intended use so there's i mean there, there are people who do that right and that that's that tends to be hobby hobbyists there are, <laughs> but there are lots of you know um there's a lot of more recent uh uh, things like like people working with Raspberry Pi. So Raspberry Pi was a came out of a um, a hack a hacking kind of mentality where things are open, things are uh, are free. That's to a use. little computer, uh, a little the, tiny computer. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Raspberry Pi is like a little tiny computer, um, and people can uh, use it to run like entertainment systems or li- uh, run programs that listen for bird calls, and you can um, and 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 tells you what bird's making that call, so you can plug all sorts of little. Um, things into it like speakers and headphones and stuff we're kind of getting a bit off topic here but anyway (laughs) but the point is is that hackers are you know there are different flavors of hackers and they're not all bad right um and one of the things i like about the hacking hacking space and the hacker and maker space is that people do try to be quite thoughtful and and um uh respectful of 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 society right they don't try to make things that 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 just <laughs> that the harm people or that that the, the cl- classic kind of movie hackers might might do right um and uh um i guess it ties back into kind of things like codes of ethics hack spaces and hacking kind of conferences and 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 hack, hacking camps and things tend to have quite stringent um codes of conduct and codes of ethics because of the fact that mostly like in tradition traditionally they've catered to some of the more mar- marginalized people in in the computing world just to start with and computing computer geeks and computer nerds have have traditionally been kind of a ma- ma- marginalized group right you know there's in the classic kind of geeks versus the jocks kind of way right <laughs> um so there's always been this feeling that that computer people are outside of of the uh the mainstream and i think in some ways they like to keep it that way in some ways they sort of you know but they want to, they also want to bring bring and open that up to anyone who's uh, who's also interested in 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 participating right so you have to have a um the ability to 
be be you know you have to have the ability to come to an agreement about what the norms of behavior are going to be within those sorts of situations right and then um i guess this then comes back to the the ethics side of things what was there before the association of computing machinery um redid their code of ethics so there was actually a previous code of ethics and it's actually been various ideas of codes of ethics within um professional computing for oh for for quite a few years actually at least you know um for 30 40 years or something like that um it was mostly about profession it was more about professional ethics so a lot of it came from other prof- like um the sorts of ethics that you would see in other professions so things like you know be honest be um uh, you know keep confidentiality those sorts of those sorts of classic ethical requirements that you would have of a profession um but then um certainly in the 1990s which was when the first well one of the the, the main uh, ACM code of ethics was developed that that started to bring in very specific computing requirements so things back then it was things like make sure you keep your server rooms locked and things like that so it was all about things like physical security it was about things like um uh don't misrepresent what a server like what what a system might be able to do it was about making sure that the code that you were writing was was um um like a, a was was robust and 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 things like that so yeah so that that was what was there before it was very much uh very very geared around professionalism and one of the nice things about the rewrite of it was that it opened it up not just about professionals uh working in professional spaces although it's still very much geared to that but it was op- opened it up to any um aspiring computing professionals so anyone really who wants to work in this field um can actually look at this code of ethics and and help and use that to help them make decisions about potentially um complicated uh, ethical uh, quandaries that might come up uh during their what they what they do with a computer <laughs> Would a uh, cryptocurrency ethical framework be a computer ethical framework or would it be an economic ethical framework? What what sphere of ethics do you look at when you start to think about what it means to have an ethical cryptocurrency? Well, I mean, I think I want to push a little bit back on that because I'm not sure it's possible to have an ethical cryptocurrency um <laughs> and I'll tell you my reason excellent for that. <laughs> right so and this case, this is actually how how you described it in the very beginning right is that you said it was about um it was built on speculation and cryptocurrencies the only way that they are able to be um have any value is through trading and there has to be an incentive for that trade for those trades to make to take place there is also this thing called mining which is how the that big open book with the ledgers how that verifies the transactions that are made and all this and that actually there's there's a lot of drive with that as well but that, that there's no point in doing any mining unless there's actually people who are willing to trap to to transact with with this currency right so the only real incentives um to actually make transactions with this is that is is that other people are using it so there's, there's a couple of them right one is that other people are using it will and will accept it so if i want to buy a pizza from you and you say oh i only accept bitcoin i'll be like oh right now i have to go and find some bitcoin and so that will be a, t- a couple of transactions that are made right um there's another reason that people do it and it's be, if they think that they're going to make money off the transaction so there might be some 
system that they go through that much like kind of tr- currency, um, you can make money off tra- um, um, trading in currencies with like, things like exchange rates and stuff like that uh, in the fiat world. Uh, and I'm not an economist, so please, <laughs> I may <laughs> no, not be getting fine. this entirely right. But uh, um, there are there are ways of of making money through through transactions. So you know you, you try to buy at the peak and uh, you, know, you buy at the low and sell at the peak. That sort of stuff, right? You know all these sorts of classic trading kind of things. But this is all based on speculation, right? So the idea is that if you buy now, you want to make sure that you buy at the low and then you sell at the high. So there's a lot of um, uh, impetus behind you know how do we how do we get the currency to be high right how do we how do we push it up how do we boost the value so that when i sell my cryptocurrency on it's going to be worth more than what what i bought it for and so the ways that this because there's no real to be honest with you apart from the drug market which is also mostly fallen apart these days because it is now you know people can actually find out who buys stuff um, on the drug markets um it's it, there are very very few real life scenarios where you actually would be paying with bitcoin uh, or whatever so these kind of classic transactions where i might pay you some bitcoin for for something that you know you give to me um they don't really exist really it's, so it's mostly just people transacting amongst themselves trying to get better deals out of each other um or you know maybe they might buy an nft or something like that which is i'm sure we'll probably talk about that in a bit as well but yeah um so the speculation then drives that. And the only way that the speculation then works is that if you are somehow pumping pumping up the currency. And the way people do that is that they go on and they hype it up in, in they, they, they pay celebrities a lot of money to hype things up. They go and buy ads at the Super Bowl. They um, try to, you know, say, oh, like, like they try to sell people the, the concept of being outside of this. And, but they also try to sell the people the classic kind of, you can make a lot of money trading in this, right? Which really, when you think about it, is an unsustainable thing. Like there's no way it can always ever, con- you know, continue to go, to go up without going down at, at various points because somebody has to, you know, um, eventually like cash in their vast holdings, right? And then that drives the value back down again because they, they, they want to sell at, at the peak or what they consider to be the peak. So the fact that you have this speculation means you've always got someone who loses out, right? And I just and and the way that it's set up and the way that it's hyped and the way that the fact that it's it, there is not really a market outside of trading with within um, the system, it, it I don't and I'm not the I mean that there's 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 a lot of schools of thought. Well, there's two schools of thought. One is that that's fine. And, you know, that's just how people, you know, the, 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 the wild west of the Bitcoin economy or the, the cryptocurrency economy, that's just how it should work. And the other side is that actually this is problematic because you're um, selling a, an idea to vulnerable people who perhaps have lost a lot of money in traditional uh, investments or in, you know, the global financial crisis or whatever, you know, the, 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 they need extra money because of the cost of living has gone up and they, they see this investment opportunity that you've sold them that says, oh, well, you'll get 20% back on your investment because Bitcoin is the future. Um, this is the problem that I have with it. And I don't think that this, that this, the way that it's set up, because there's no external value really for it it's really just a playground in amongst itself it really is not set up in a way that it can be considered ethical because of the fact that the harms done to the people who are most likely to be vulnerable people um are outweighed by any good 
which, I mean, I don't think there's really a lot of good apart from people having fun gambling, essentially. <laughs> so, so part of the issue here is that when people speculate on commodities like pork bellies or something like that, there is an objective thing. Uh, there's, there's pork futures, there's pigs, there's, there's bacon, there's a market that we have some sort of sense of what that value is and that people right. will buy and sell it because bacon is either more or less in, 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 in demand. But the cryptocurrency is so completely divorced of that, that it's entirely about reputation and speculation, which is, uh, which is largely about manipulation and, and, and taking advantage of the vulnerable. That's what you're arguing, yes. basically. Yeah. And at least if the, pork, if the pork market goes bottoms up, you've still got some pork you can eat, potentially, right? Right, Whereas, right. you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, if the, if the cryptocurrency market goes, you know, bottom up, there's nothing you've got absolutely nothing you don't even have a physical anything that you can potentially trade with your neighbors in a post-apocalyptic you know scenario or something like that right so it's 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 it is so divorced from any sort of reality it really is only it's only built up um within itself for itself and it's 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 completely um i mean they it's commonly um Compared to the the whole tulip uh, market thing that uh, happened back in what was it the 1600s or something <laughs> back in I mean, the the future the tulip futures but at least uh, the tulip people the people that bought tulips uh, from the flower markets in Holland still had the tulips that they could potentially grow right <laughs> um, so yeah it was uh, it's it's not a great um, system I think in terms of ethics now. There are for sure people who are listening to this show who are yelling at their podcast right now, <laughs> who, 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 are, who, are, who are taking offense and saying you're misrepresenting or that there is an ethical thing. What, what's the argument against your position? What are those people screaming at you right now? Well, mostly they're probably screaming that I don't understand the system because that's usually what I get. Um, but <laughs> I have a pretty good understanding of the system. Um, I think that the thing that they tend to get upset about is the fact that um, it's it's in early days. This is one of the arguments that you hear. You see here quite frequently. Oh, but we're just in early days. Um, you know, there's lots of future stuff coming in the future that this is going to be useful for. Um, and you know, look at look at all these other like there's a lot of other systems that blockchains uh, can 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 support, and all of these cryptocurrencies help to kind of um, make those systems work, and um, and and they're, they're going to be the future. The cryptocurrency is just going to be the 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 mechanism by which we go on to build more complex things like the metaverse, which you know is a, a like Web three and all of these kind of other. Um, uh, you know, these DAOs, which are like kind of like distributed, uh, I want to quote democratic, unquote, um, uh, communities that make decisions based on how much cryptocurrency you have and stuff like this. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of systems and they're going to say, yeah, the cryptocurrency is like, you know, yes, it's speculative for the moment. Yes, it's, um, you know, it does tend to leave people who are buying in now worse off than people who had bought in like, you know, two months, five years, 10 years ago. Um, but look, it's still going, it's still going to go up. It's always going to go up. It's, 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 you know, people, if you, even if you buy in now, you're still going to get a, a return on your investment, but you might have to wait a certain period of time. 
Um, you know, you've just got to hold on to that investment, you know, and they talk about things like diamond hands, having, having diamond hands that you're never going to, not going to lose, you're not going to drop your, your cryptocurrency, you're not going to sell it, you've got to hold on to it. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the main, the main argument. A lot of it has to do with futures that don't, that haven't come to pass yet, basically. So, so the system, the system is in its infancy. There's a lot of problems to to be resolved, and if we just have faith and if we buy into the system, eventually, it's going to be, it's going to let us flourish in this virtual world and other such things. Which sounds a lot like the hype that you were talking about in the Super Bowl, right? It sounds like right. uh, a, a, a city built in speech. <laughs> um, to, exactly. To use a yes. Quote. Right. Um, you, you, in the midst of that, you expressed skepticism that this was democratic um <laughs> why isn't this a democratic system i think the the most the most uh, accurate description i've heard was that it's a, it's a kleptocratic society it's about who who can steal the most cryptocurrency and <laughs> really when we see um uh there's a really good website that you can go to that shows all of the uh the, the hacks, the failures, the rug pulls of uh, of companies that have kind of tried to uh, set up in this in this space uh, called Web three is going great, um, and what it shows is that there are a lot of people who like because there's a lot of money tied up in this stuff, right? There's a lot of real people have used real money to buy Bitcoin, right, or, or other coins, and a lot of it is other coins, um, meme coins they're often called, um, so people have used real money to buy that. So there is actually some real, there, there is still some real money value somewhere, right? Somewhere. It's a bit lost at the moment because it, it, it gets, it gets a bit lost in the system, but um, I mean, by, by lost in the system, I mean, the person that you originally bought the, the, the coins from has that money, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but the, um, uh, because there's a lot of theoretical money running around in this, like theoretically you could sell your coins in the future for a lot of money. So there is theoretical money in this. Um, people uh, have targets over their head if they have a lot of it, right? So that, that makes them vulnerable to people who like to steal, you know, do classic kind of scams or classic uh, phishing kind of scams or, um, you know, click on this link in your email and we'll, I don't know, give you a free phone or whatever, those sorts of like scams and things like that, right? And there's, so there's a lot of... Um, a lot of theft that goes on in, in this space. And because it's in a space that's not heavily regulated, there's no real recourse for any of this stuff. So people whose money is gone, it's gone. You know, you can't really call the police because they don't really know what to do with it. And, uh, you know, there's no kind of like the, the, the bank, the, the, the kind of the banks of crypto are not insured like your, you know, government backed banks would be. Um, so any deposits you make into those are not, and you can't get them back. And so when actually the entire like um, companies that run big, I mean, they're called kind of, they're called currency exchanges, right? Because they, they tend to exchange between different, different types of coins and for real money as well. Um, when they go under, they tend to take everybody with them and people tend to leave their money in these exchanges because it makes it easy to transact with it. Um, so it's, it's, it, 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 there's a lot of, so it's not really, I mean, it's a bit of a kleptocracy at the moment because whoever steals the most tends to win. Now, the d democratic side of it that I was kind of talking about are these, what are called DAOs, which are, oh gosh, I have to look up the, 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 what, what they stand for again. Um, 
But um, they're uh, oh, decentralized autonomous organizations. Here we go. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, which is basically like uh, it's a community. It's a, it's a group that comes together and decides that they're going to to organize it for for some sort of purpose, right? So it might be. So a really famous one is that a DAO got together. A whole bunch of people who were very enthusiastic about the film Dune, um, which was a fairly recent, well, you know, and, and the whole books, the books behind Dune. And there was a book up for sale that was the original, like, screen, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a book about with all the original uh, staging of a, a film for Dune. And these people came together and they were like, we want to buy this and then we can make the film, right? Um, and because it's going to be really expensive, let's all get together and we'll form a DAO. And what this DAO will do is show everybody, um, you know, where the money's coming in and when we're going to spend it. And it like has this kind of whole like system that, that shows kind of theoretically it's transparent. But what it also has is voting rights. So you can vote on what to do with money in the system that's in the system. You have to buy in to get the to, to get a membership of the system and then you can vote. But what this ends up happening, what ends up happening in these systems is that the people with the most votes tend to win and the people that tends to be the people who bought the most tickets for the votes, right? So the people who bought the most memberships and you can buy multiple memberships. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Dune Dow thing was spectacular failure because they, they didn't realize that if they bought the book, they didn't actually buy the rights to make a film. Um, but there have been other DAOs where the person who originally set, started the DAO off has been voted out of the DAO by the membership because they didn't like what they were doing. And I mean, there were a whole, whole bunch of um, things like that. But what's ended up happening with DAOs is that people who want to influence the system tend to just buy up um, most of the shares, essentially. So it becomes a bit uh, like a, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as democratic as they would like it to be. It tends to be more, um, um, oh, what's the word when you have, <laughs> it's the person with the most money is the, uh, is the person who makes the decisions really in, right. An in, oligarchy. in these situations. Right. Oligarchy. Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I do so, this yes. for a living. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, uh, again, right. I can imagine someone saying, well, but you're describing just messy democracy and you're describing the way that stock uh, markets work and that and that you're holding Bitcoin or you're holding cryptocurrency to a different standard because everything that you're describing happens in the non-virtual world, too. So right. is. Is that a fair criticism or is I mean, there something worse going on? I mean, it is a fair criticism to a certain degree, right? I mean, yes, that happens in real life. It doesn't mean it's a good thing, right, that it happens in real <laughs> life either. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that that – I mean, the thing is, is they also – they it part of the reason of coming up with this system, because, you know, if you want messy democracy, do it in messy democracy ways, right? Like do it the old – like you don't need a, a an, an online system to do that, right? or this particular, you don't need this very specific cryptocurrency underwritten type system to do that. You, I mean, there's lots of ways of doing community organization and voting. And I mean, we do that with, with shares and shareholders, right? Classically. Right. So you don't need a cryptocurrency backed way of doing this. Um, the thing that they want to say though, is that, that, that they want this to be uh, better 
than than the existing systems right so the idea is that it, it should be a, a lofty there should be a lofty goal for it to to be more democratic quote unquote than the, the current systems that we have that really it's it and and the fact that there's no kind of central authority is key to that in their minds right and um i mean the in sort of modern, I guess, democracies, we see central authorities as playing a role of, you know, regulator of, um, uh, you know, responsibility taker, uh, and, uh, you know, other other roles that kind of come come with having that sort of power, right? In these systems, um, they want there to be no central um, uh, organization, no central authority. So, so really it comes down to the the way that it's been programmed um for certain systems so they talk about code as law quite a lot with this so you know if the if the program if the 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 if the computer if the if the computer says no it says no sort of thing right um to use a classic uh um kind of meme i guess in that way um but but they also want it to to they 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 want to take away what they see to be a like a stumbling block or a roadblock in in kind of the um, economies of the future, which are these central regulatory spaces, so the, the institutions. So um, they want their spaces to be more about like uh, whoever. I guess I mean it's a, a classic libertarian thing too, right? If you if you're doing well for yourself and you've um, uh, you know you you uh, you've earned a lot of money because you're you make you know, good decisions about, about your investments or you're a hard worker and you get paid well and all that, then you should be rewarded for that, right? By having more say perhaps than someone who's not made quite so clever decisions as you have, et cetera, right? Um, and so that's kind of, there's that, that, that kind of thread has come through in the development of these systems where it's like, it's supposed to be kind of like a meritocracy in some ways, right? The people who, who, uh, uh, the, you know, merit the the most votes or the 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 most power should you know have it but i think that really um they're trying to kind of do two things at once they want to have this decentralized space but they're re-centralizing it in a social way so the space itself in a programmatic way is decentralized so the software itself doesn't care um you know who's like who has them like if, if somebody has the most or if everyone has equal shares right but the social structures that are part of these systems, which there are massive social structures. I mean, they are, usually there are discords, there are Twitter accounts, there are, you know, ads in the Super Bowl. <laughs> there are hugely social structures that accompany the, the programmatic side of this that are definitely not neutral, that are definitely um, have an agenda and they, they, they um, talk to each other and they, 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 um, collude with each other and, and and all these sorts of things go on right so it's it's not as pure as they would like it to be think to think it is and i think they're they're struggling with the fact that the software itself might be you know as well, i say neutral in a non-ethical term <laughs> because right. that's a whole other story right but it, it may be neutral to the, the the power that it has but the social structures just they just can't help but come back again and this this um you know we we are social creatures right we're, we're humans are not 
we're not going to be code as law because we, we're going to find the code unfair at some point or we're going to be upset with the decision that the code makes. And so we want to go talk to somebody about it or organize with other people about it. So I think it's it's a they're, they're running into a real problem where they want the technology to be the driver, but actually it's going to come back and come back again that it's the social side that, that is going to be the main driver of, of how this develops in the future. So is it fair to say that the rhetoric claims that the ethics lie in the computing aspect, but in fact, the ethics lie in the human aspect. And that's and that it's a misdirect because people keep thinking of it as a computing problem when it's really a people problem. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Got it in one. I think, um, you know, I mean, all compute, all technology problems, really, when it comes down to it, are people problems, right? Right. Because technology and society is so well intertwined, you can't really separate them out from each other. I mean, we don't create things. I, there's, there's no, I mean, there's the classic Langdon winner, right? There's no, artifacts have politics. There, there's no, there are no neutral technologies. There's always... Um, when you develop technologies, you're always putting your values into those technologies, right? And I mean, there are very specific values that that, that the crypto engineers have put into the systems that um, that they've developed. But it's uh, yeah, very much a, a social enterprise, right? It's, there's no you can't divorce yourself from that. And I think that that's where the rubber is hitting the road for these crypto um, crypto asset spaces is that. They can't ignore the social side of it, and in fact, the social side of it is so important for, firstly, the the even the, the like all the hype cycle behind it. It's 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 crucial for the, um, for them to make money off it. But then they try to h- kind of hide behind the technology and say, oh, but the technology is neutral. The technology doesn't, you know, blah blah blah. They try to hide behind that when when the um, <laughs> when the chickens come home to roost with regard to you know trying to actually regulate this stuff or trying to find out who's responsible for stealing a lot of money or for who might be responsible for, you know, mis-selling securities or something like that. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, there's, there's a big conflict within that space for developers of crypto uh, technologies in that they need to really understand the, the social side of what they're developing and how to make sure that that's a beneficial thing. And I just don't think that that's really possible. Eventually, uh, I'm going to ask you whether regulation is possible at all. Uh, but before that, I do want to go down the NFT road a little bit because you alluded to it. Are NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are they attempts to ground uh, this problem of external value is, 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 could you explain what an NFT is and why it's different if it is uh, from say a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin or something like that? What, and, and what is the philosophical purpose of NFTs and, and, and what do they accomplish and what's the problem? Right. So um, yes, you're right. So an NFTs are an attempt to kind of bridge this gap, right? So on the blockchain, you can have trans, you, you record transactions and the transactions can be of coins like bitcoins, uh, currency, sorry, like bitcoins, or they could be of really, I mean, and, and certain blockchains. So not all blockchains support this. So Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain doesn't actually support this. Well, quote unquote, the classic Bitcoin blockchain doesn't support this, but 
blockchains like Ethereum, and that's the main one that's being used for NFTs. Um, Ethereum allows you to to to, to uh, essentially track other sorts of transactions. So, an NFT basically is a little piece of um, it's a little contract essentially, and it basically has some um, uh, programmatic code in there that uh, explains what it is that this this transaction is of essentially so it might be of a piece of artwork right let's these are the classic these are the classic nfts that people have heard about you know the apes and the uh, crypto punks and things like that right they're they're d- digitally created artworks there are a whole bunch of really ugly monkeys essentially <laughs> and uh, people seem to like to co- to collect them uh, for some reason um, and i'll get into that reason um but basically um the classic one is that it, it points to a, a an image of what the artwork is uh, on in within this programmatic code. There might be some other information about what happens if you resell the NFT on. So there might be some royalties that go back to the original artist. So that's one of the things they wanted to put into these NFTs. But originally, I mean, the original people that came up with it, it was just supposed to be a proof of concept that showed that you could transact other things on on a crypto on, on sorry on a blockchain. Um, and so therefore that opened up the space that, well, we're not just going to be trading um, currencies, we can be trading anything, right? So the idea is that you can really use these ledgers to, to track any sort of transaction. So there are lots of people who think that the future is um, having um, like legal contracts. So for example, if I, if I sell you my house, we could actually potentially do that on a blockchain. So using all of the the mechanisms of the blockchain, it could register that I've sold my house to you and that you are now the legal owner of my house. Um, and there are things like that. So, so sales of actual physical objects, um, also things like provenance of art, of art is another um, use case that people have talked about. Uh, things like tickets to, um, you know, concerts or sports events. Um, things like uh, collectibles in video games, people are using, you know, these are the sorts of things they want to, and they are in fact um, using uh, the NFT system to kind of uh, uh, transact, right. To, 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 to buy and sell. Now the problem with these is that, um, well, (laughs) there's a few different problems. The main problem well, is let, that let me the, interrupt for just a second yep, because sure. that was super complicated, and so let me just yeah. make sure that, that that I understand it. Okay. So, the goal was to take this um, virtual system and say you you don't just have to record in the ledger in the blockchain uh, these virtual interactions. You you the exchanges you can exchange anything. You can exchange a house. You could exchange a ticket. You can exchange anything. So let's take these things. This this this. Uh, virtual artwork and use them as placeholders in order to show that anything can be traded. And so we're going to, we're going to use these placeholders in order to symbolize uh, exchange in the non-virtual as well as the virtual world. But then the placeholders themselves became objects of trade and value. And so these this digital art, which was supposed to symbolize all you can do, are themselves becoming objects of speculation. Is that a Correct. fair interpretation? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So now go. Yeah. yeah. 
right. <laughs> so, so the issue with this is that, um, all right. So firstly, the blockchain itself, the ledger is immutable. So that means that you can't change it once you've written something in it. You can just update. So you basically, it's a bit like in, a, in an accounting ledger where, you know, if, if, um, you know, you make a mistake, you can't like, well, it, you, you, you have to basically just add more lines to the bottom. You can't just go in like, you know, erase bits of it because that's, I don't know, there's various accounting fraud, I think, that includes, is involved in. So It's encyclopedic. Uh, yes, right. Yeah. Right. So it is. So so the, the, the ledger, the, the blockchain itself, you can really only add new lines to it. Um, you can't delete any previous lines. Now, the problem with that is that it runs into a whole bunch of privacy law, particularly in, in the EU and the UK, where we have quite stringent privacy law. So if I sell you my house, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's usually within a, um, a, a sales agreement that has a lot of identifying information. And that's problematic to basically put on a publicly facing immutable uh, ledger that you can't change if like, you know, there's a whole bunch of law in the EU and the UK that says if, if you know, I, I should be able to update things like my name and my address and my phone number if I want to, or I should be able to delete that information from anyone that has it that isn't me. Um, and so you can't do that within, within a blockchain. So that kind of nixes a whole load of the these um, ideas that people have that there's, there should be these, you know, the ability to, to transact certain sorts of like legal um, like le- like legal contracts, like houses or cars or, or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, so uh, and also, I mean, there've been people talking about things like using using the, these as like uh, being able to have your own medical history with you as an NFT and things like that. So I mean, these these can get quite problematic, when, you know, when when you actually start to drill down into what what some companies actually want to do with with this technology. Um, but the classic kind of ones are the, let's say, the artworks, right? And the problem with those is that a bunch of people uh, who are very good at marketing um, got a lot of, got you know, saw, saw this collectability thing and they pushed this collectability thing and they said, oh, these are the new baseball cards or the new, I don't know, collectible, whatever the collectible card game hype is at the moment, right? <laughs> Amongst the kids and the adults. This is the new thing, right? And this is the, and, and they, they, they gave them, a whole bunch to like celebrities. So there's some classic celebrities like Paris Hilton, um, Jimmy Fallon, who had some of these apes and they like, they either gave them to them or they, they sold them to them for a really small amount of money. And then they, you know, part of the requirement of that was that they hyped them up on, you know, there's a whole lot of hype. And once again, just like the cryptocurrencies, the hype was in order to boost the value of these collectibles, theoretically, the art, this art, right. And then, um, the people who already owned it then would off like sell it off at, at a higher price than they paid for it. Um, and there, so that's one, one, one problem with it, right. Is this boosting, right. Um, and um, the, the hype boosting and then, you know, the, the kind of the poor suckers at the, at the end who buy now, now they <laughs> you've probably seen the newspaper article recently where it talks about, uh, how 95% of NFTs have no value now. Right. right. And that's really a, um, you know, that's just, I mean, there are some problems with that study, but I think the overall story isn't a, isn't a bad one in that, it, you know, these things just have no value. I mean, the only value they had was in the aesthetics of the art. And <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> a lot of those are scraping the bottle, <laughs> bottom of the barrel. Right. So, um, 
yeah so i think that's you know then there are these nfts that are associated with things like video games and the video games ones were really complicated and really problematic because people would actually get would pay people in developing countries to essentially farm these nfts like you would in a video game um there's a lot of repetitive actions that you can do in order to get like rewards and in these particular video games the rewards were these nfts which you could then sell on the open market and so what these um enterprising individuals were doing was were paying poor people in the philippines particularly to spend all day sitting on the video game doing these repetitive tasks and then um, taking a cut of the sales that would be made um, of of the rewards for those tasks on the open market. So there was a lot of exploitation going on there. And uh, at the time when this was a big thing, uh, which is about a, probably about a year ago now, I was I was um, like really found that problematic in a not just a kind of exploitation me- um, mechanism, but there was a lot of colonialization kind of overtones there. Um, in terms of the, you know, the people doing the exploiting and the people being exploited. Um, and these sorts of ecosystems have kind of built up and a lot of them have lost a lot of their value now, so they're not worth doing anymore, thankfully. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the next one isn't around the corner, right? The next kind of hype cycle for for another similarly exploitative thing. So these are all based on these NFTs and this idea that you can sell these kind of things on a, on a mar- in, in a market. Um, and they have some potentially tangible um, uh, like thing. But the, another issue with the NFTs is that a lot of them hyped up, like pro- they made a lot of promises about what the future is going to bring in terms of what you can do with the NFTs. So some of them are supposed to be like tickets or memberships. And so just like you might buy a VIP ticket to the baseball, which gets you a nice box. And I don't know, I've never had a VIP ticket to the baseball, so I don't know what it gets you, but it might get you some nice food and a drink or whatever. The idea is you could buy this NFT and it would get, get you access to a club or a, uh, a concert or something and you get a VIP treatment there. And I mean, some of these have happened, um, but usually what happens when you get there is the VIP side or, you know, the, the, mem- the people who've bought these NFTs, you know, it's not quite what they thought they paid for um or you know in in the worst case scenario these people just disappear overnight and they just take all the money and there's no way to get the money back like like i was saying there's no recourse once you've given your cryptocurrency for an nft that's it so there's a lot of problems with nfts basically so we have at this point we've had kleptocracy uh, oligarchy exploitation hype and fraud <laughs> um yep and <laughs> Uh, before I ask you the regulation question, you hear these stories of both theft and you hear these stories of, well, a person had $100 million in their wallet, but they lost their password and now they're out, they're out $100 million if there's nothing you can do. Is there, is there truth to these stories? And is there any mechanism to protect someone from just having their cryptocurrency or NFTs or what have you just disappeared? So the only way you can protect yourself from having your whatever crypto assets or whatever, um, the only way you can have can protect yourself from the, those disappearing is to essentially go back to the old, the original way that Bitcoin was originally supposed to be um, kind of handled, which was almost like um, 
physically in person. So you would actually take your wallet, your wallet number, and you would write it down on a piece of paper and you would physically give it to somebody and they would do the transaction. And then um, you would like, it would be, but they would transact directly to your wallet. So these days, most of the transactions go through these exchanges and they, they're all, and all of the wallets are stored kind of online. So if it's kind of complicated technically, but that's kind of what it is. But if you have a, a wallet that, that, the, the number is only written down on a piece of paper that you've got stashed in the, you know, a, a safe in your house, then it's, and, and the key and the keys to open that are, are only stored with, you know, in that safe. Um, then that's the only real way you can, can protect yourself. The problem is, is that in order for the, these crypto exchanges to be able to use your wallets, they have to have the keys. Um, and that's, that as soon as you give your keys over to somebody, essentially, um, that's when all this problem, all these problems can happen. But it makes sense for people to do that because otherwise, it's a really, really hard user interface onboarding experience because people don't want to have to deal with long strings of numbers. Um, they tend to want programs to do it for them, and so there's this real once again, it's this social side that they hadn't really kind of planned for coming back to bite them because people don't want to have to deal with the actual hard parts of privacy and secrecy and, and cryptography. Um, they want to just kind of have it work. And there's a trade-off whenever you create, whenever you create something that's supposed to be secure or private, there's always a trade-off with usability. And this is the problem that they've run into. Right. So some people are now looking to see if these things can be regulated by some sort of government or whatever, I mean, it's basically impossible. <laughs> um, the only real regulation that we're seeing is kind of more regulation in terms of the, um, you know, uh, the stick method for companies that are doing problematic things. So fraud and, um, you know, particularly securities fraud. Um, they're the only real regulatory sides we're seeing. So the FTC is getting a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, FTC and the SEC. Yeah, they're, they're doing a lot of work in terms of regulating the companies that are operating in the space. But in terms of the actual, like your own personal wealth, I suppose, your own personal um, assets, there's not really a lot that can, can be done. And um, again, one little bonus uh, <laughs> question, because this is, this is the, the key to all of this stuff these days. Um, there's also the environmental impact that, that cryptocurrency has a tremendous footprint. Why is that? Right. So classically, um, the original Bitcoin and the original Ethereum blockchains were what are called proof of work. So uh, blockchains. Now, the way that blockchains work is that there needs to be an incentive for people like the, the ledger needs to be verified. Right. So if I just write down that I'm going to give you some money and, you know, you read that um, and I don't give you the money um, that they're basically um, what happens is programmatically speaking, the, the transaction isn't verified so that it doesn't actually get updated onto the, the, the ledger properly. Um, it, it's complicated, <laughs> but basically that what, what, what the verification mechanism is, is it ensures that these transactions go through. And the way to do this is what is by what's called mining um, in proof of work blockchains. And the mining is essentially every transaction uh, that is placed on the bit on on the ledger goes through several different like people check it they double check it um, and what these what well I say people computers double check it and what these computers do is they solve really really complicated mathematical puzzles in order like if they in order to win the um, 
the chance to kind of uh, check verifications. It is, it's kind of complicated, but <laughs> this is the problem with this. this is a very, very technical uh, subject, right? It gets very complicated very quickly. So um, they have to solve these very, very complicated mathematical puzzles as part of this verification procedure. And what that does is it uses a lot of energy. And this is why you see people talking about like um, buying lots of computers with lots of graphics processors in them because graphics processors are really good at doing these particular types of mathematical puzzles. Um, and, but they use a lot of energy to do that. So a lot of el electricity, they give off a lot of heat, they give off a lot of, you know, um, th there's a lot of uh, burnout of these uh, devices. So they have to be replaced really, really frequently. Um, and there's a huge cost in terms of energy. Now, uh, it, the kind of the pro mining people will say, ah, oh, yes, but we just use renewable energy. Uh, we just use things like um, gas flares from um, like flares from, from gas um, deposits and things like that. You know, we, we, we don't, we don't just take straight off the grid. Um, but they do. And in fact, what they do is they shop around for the cheapest possible energy prices, which sometimes literally means they have shipping containers with all of these setups for these computers, the, these rigs in these shipping containers. They ship them around the US particularly looking for the, the cheapest energy. Um, and it's gotten so bad that in Texas, for example, they've actually, the Texas government pays cryptocurrency miners to turn off their rigs, to turn off their computing systems in order for there to be enough electricity for households in Texas. So oh. that's a pretty, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I, I would call that in, in, in another way, I, you know, that seems almost like blackmail sometimes. Uh, right. So <laughs> um, it's a really problematic space. So what, so this is just for Bitcoin now these days. So when I say the, the original version of Ethereum was also like this, but um, last year, they finally, Ethereum had been building towards what they call uh, Ethereum 2, um, which is a proof of stake uh, blockchain. And they actually shifted over. To, uh, it, was a, it was one of those things that was coming in the future. It was coming in the future forever. And then it finally actually showed up, which everyone was quite surprised by. <laughs> but what they did is they shifted over from this proof of work to a proof of stake blockchain. And what a proof of stake blockchain does is instead of having to solve lots of mathematical problems, um, part of the verification process is that you, um, if you want to be part of this verif verification process, you have a lot of um, tokens that are called stake staking tokens. And what you can do is you put them up and you say, look, I'm going to do my part of the verification. Um, I'm going to stake 30 Ethereum or whatever. I can't remember the exact number. I'm going to uh, stake 30 of these tokens um, and that will be my insurance that I'll do it properly. Right. And then the idea is that if you don't do it properly, the system will take those tokens from you. Um, but that basically keeps everybody in line. So everybody will, you know, does it properly. So the thing about proof of stake um, is that the more stakes you can buy, the more likely you are to get the rewards for having staked. So you get a, you get a, a certain amount of cryptocurrency for a successful um, verification. This is the same in the proof of work, which is the incentive behind it. Right. Um, so you'll get your stake back and you'll get, I don't know, a certain amount. I can't remember how much it is exactly, but it's worthwhile. But this takes a lot less energy because really all you're doing is, is basically waving a, you know, like an auction flag around saying, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but the problem with it is that it's, it's open to a bit more, um, so 
So the problem with these these systems is that you have to be careful of collusion because if you have more than 51% of the people involved in the transaction processes um, colluding together and saying, aha, let's just, tr- let's just, let's not do it properly. Let's, let's, you know, fiddle with it and send the money somewhere else instead. As long as you've got 51% of people uh, of the, the, the transaction processes, like the verification processes saying that that was a correct thing to do, then it will go, it, it, it'll be messed with essentially. Uh, it's a lot easier yeah. to mess with a proof of stake than it is to mess with the proof of work because proof of work requires you to have a lot of money to buy a lot of physical systems. Whereas proof of stake just requires you to have a lot of, of the, the tokens and that's a lot easier to do. So that's environmentally a lot better, but it's problematic in terms of potential fraud essentially. Right. So, and and Sorry. again, super, 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 super technical. But but the the gist Sorry. of it was no, no, no. That's fine. I mean, it's it's right. It's it's we we have to dive into it. But again, I'll offer a summary, and then I'll ask one final question. Um, sure. Uh, if I understand what you're what you're saying is is the environmental cost was was based on the fact that the computers were doing this these mathematical puzzles that verified transactions. In order to stop that environmental impact, we've moved from the computer to the social aspect again. But since it's social, and it's it's now subject to who has the most money and who has the most friends. And so the quote unquote objective nature of the mathematical verifications has now opened it up to the subjective nature, which then allows for fraud and collusion and other such things. And so now you're building on uh, hype and fraud and money in order to verify hype and fraud and money. And so you're using the same system to verify the system. Is that, is that a fair yes. summary? Yes. And I think it's, it's important to point out that Bitcoin though still uses the original proof of work. So it still uses the very environmentally unfriendly approach and they want to keep it that way. There's, there's, there's very little chance that that will change just because of the nature of firstly, the community um, and secondly, the um, it's a lot more complicated to move to, to shift that one from a proof of work to a proof of stake or any other system. Okay, so so we've got kleptocracy, we've got oligarchy, we've got exploitation, we've got embezzlement, fraud, loss, environmental degradation, um, and collusion. Is the message that we should stay away from cryptocurrency? Is the message that this is, pardon the pun, a minefield that that we should just walk away from? Is it just, hey, if you don't mind risking some money, it's a fun game? Uh, is it never the wave of the future? Or do you have some sense that any of this stuff can be resolved? Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be resolved. I think it's going to be around, though. And so I think that it's worthwhile understanding what it is and knowing that there are, I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? You, you, you'll never, a lot of the hype that's about this is about how much money you can make from it. And so that makes it very tempting for people to buy in. And the problem is with that is that um, it really is a gambling, it's a gamble. And so you have to be willing to lose the money that you put into it. And this is, I mean, this is also a side of the, the, from the, the environmental side. So let's, 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 you know, put that aside. If you're going to invest in cryptocurrencies, firstly, don't choose Bitcoin because it's environmentally problematic, um, but pick something else. But then you have to understand that it's fairly likely you will lose all of your money or at least a large amount of your money. 
because you will need to understand that you're part of a bigger system that has a lot more money than you that is trying to essentially get you to be the last person holding the bag. Um, so I think that that's probably the answer to that, that question. I would be very skeptical of anything that uses blockchain. Um, even like there are some companies out there that are saying, oh, we can use blockchain to, for, to, you know, to improve the carbon credit pro, you know, like lots of ethical quote unquote reasons to use, you know, outcomes potentially for the use of blockchain. But even those are always underpinned by the speculative cryptocurrency. So all blockchain all blockchain tools, Web3 stuff, you know, video games, um, carbon cr credit systems, all of these tools and, and really cool environments that, that people are hyping up and saying, look, this is the future of blockchain. All of them require the speculative cryptocurrency underneath. And because all of them require the speculative cryptocurrency underneath, they're going to be held to all of this hype cycle, this fraud, the collusion, um, the kleptocracy, the oligarchies that are involved in the space for these cryptocurrencies. Well, this has been a long haul, but super interesting and a lot of technical stuff, but I have learned a lot and it helped me understand both the computing aspect, but also really focusing on the ethical issues underneath. So thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us on Why. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. You have been listening to Catherine Flick and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Catherine Flick about cryptocurrency. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to get a handle on the latest hype. And cryptocurrency is everywhere. Bitcoin, NFT, there are articles on it. There's television shows on it. There are commercials on it. And I think a lot of us experience FOMO, fear of missing out. And a lot of us think, well, all these other people are getting rich. Why can't I get rich too? Well, when everyone claims that they're getting rich and want you involved, don't believe the hype. <laughs> the people who are really getting rich don't want you involved. They want fewer people around because they want to keep the money all for themselves. Does that mean you should walk away from cryptocurrency? Well, not necessarily. I think it's you have to treat it like gambling, which is what Catherine had suggested. If you are willing to lose, play the game, but the house always wins. And in the end, you might be the person who wins the Hunger Games. You might be the person who gets the million-dollar payoff uh, on the slot machine. You might get snake eyes uh, or whatever wins and craps. I don't know what it is. But in the end the odds of you being that person are very, very slim. As a philosopher, what is profoundly interesting to me is how the problems of cryptocurrency are just the problems of society. 
that the theft, the confusion, the hype, the default to the rich, the 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 powerful getting to 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 have their way with things, all of that is just the problems of society. The question becomes, can regulation fix it? The question becomes, can governmental authorities, laws, uh, social norms, can we have an impact in a way that pulls things into a more moderate way of, of doing things? And can we have a system of justice that incorporates cryptocurrency? Catherine Flick says no, and I'm inclined to believe her. But as with all philosophical decisions, it's up to you. As with all philosophical decisions, you have to look at both sides or multiple sides of the issue and come to your own conclusions and act based on your best judgment. All I can do is give you the information as best as I see it, and I hope that we did that today. With all of that said, if you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that a much longer version with about 45 minutes of discussion is available online and as a podcast. Visit whyradioshow.org, whyradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. For everyone else, rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all the usual social networks. Our handle is always at whyradioshow. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at whyradioshow.org radioshow.org. Click donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to the UND alumni donation portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. Thank you yet again to my guest, Catherine Flick, the folks at Prairie Public, especially Skip Wood, our long-suffering engineer. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>